We're going to talk about two questions today. The first question is, why is there a new covenant? And the second is, how does Jesus bring this new covenant about? So the first question comes out of our first reading. This is the only time in the entire Old Testament when the word new covenant is used, the term new covenant. There is nowhere else in the Old Testament that refers to a new covenant. There's hints at what Jesus will do, but that's the only time the, the word new is mentioned in accord with a covenant. So the question is for us, why a new covenant? What was so wrong with the old covenant? Well, as we see in the prophecy, this new covenant is between Israel and Judah. It's for them. The problem is Israel, the northern ten tribes, they had already been destroyed and wiped out and intermingled with the Assyrians 150 years before the prophet Jeremiah is even writing this prophecy. So in terms of the people enjoying the covenant, they've been wiped out. During the time that the prophet Jeremiah is writing about this new covenant with Israel and Judah, Judah itself is undergoing this great siege of, from Babylon. They're about to be destroyed and taken into Babylon for 70 years. So they're being wiped out also. So in terms of a new covenant, it's just practically speaking, the people have been destroyed who this first covenant was made. So you need a new covenant. In addition, the first covenant was broken. The people were not faithful to the covenant, especially the covenant of Moses. We shouldn't be too hard on them. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. The problem with the old covenant was it had the law, but there was no power of the Holy Spirit to allow the people to live in accord with that law. Even though the law resonates with our human hearts, our human hearts dealing with sin, we have fallen. So we need the help of God's grace in order to live according to that law. Just as Jeremiah the prophet says, I will put my law into their hearts rather than an external law written on stone. This law is in our very selves. It's written by the power of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. We also need a new covenant that can forgive iniquity and remember our sins no more. So these elements of the prophecy of Jeremiah, it's a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. Not like that old covenant, this new covenant will be written on their hearts. It will forgive iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. And this covenant will be unbroken. And finally, a hidden element in this prophecy of Jeremiah is it's not enough to make this covenant with Israel and Judah. As I had mentioned, Israel was scattered by the Assyrians, the northern ten tribes. Judah was taken by Babylon. How on earth can you make a covenant with these tribes when you can't even find them? It's like fresh water thrown out in the middle of a salt sea. How do you bring those particles of fresh water back into your possession? How do you bring them back? The only way to do that is to bring the entire sea with you. 
That's the only way to bring that fresh water that's been scattered into the fold, back into the covenant. You need to bring all the nations with them. That's the essence of this new covenant. That's why this moment in St. John's Gospel, when the Greeks approach Jesus, that's what begins the hour of glory. It's important to remember every time the word hour is used in John's Gospel, it's always referring to the passion. Whenever the word glory is used, it's always referring to the passion. There's no transfiguration in St. John's Gospel. And really, there's no agony in the garden. This is the closest that we see to that. Father, what should I say? Save me from this hour? No, it's for this hour that I have come. That's the only closeness we get to an agony in the garden. So what inaugurates, what begins Jesus' hour? What begins the passion? The moment that the Greeks, the non-Jews, desire to see Jesus. That means his ministry on earth is coming to a close. It's time for the covenant to be made, not just with the people of Israel and the people of Judah, but indeed all of humanity, as signaled by the Greeks finally coming to see Jesus. So now that we know some of the details of why we needed a new covenant, let's talk about how Jesus brings this covenant about. And I think the words of the consecration really are the best words to give us guidance for how Jesus brings this about. At the consecration of the chalice, the words are said, this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant We get that word new from this prophecy of Jeremiah, which will be poured out for you and for many, so not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see how in the very consecration of the chalice, we have all those parts of the prophecy of Jeremiah, the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins, for you and for many, and everlasting, eternal covenant. It cannot be broken. All those elements come together in the words of consecration. The blood of this covenant is unbreakable. It's universal in scope. As Jesus says in the gospel, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, not just Jews, all people. It's for the forgiveness of sins. Now, how can sins be forgiven when a finite human being sins against an infinite God? How can you make up the difference? Only an infinite being can make up for the sins against an infinite being. The only problem is an infinite being shouldn't have to pay the price for someone who's a finite human person. So what's God's solution? In order for both the right person who owes God the justice, humans, and for an infinite being to actually adequately pay the price, God becomes man. Sin is actually able to be forgiven. The law is written in our hearts through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus says from the cross, Into your hands 
I forgive my spirit. And when he died, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's not just that spirit that's a living spirit with, within him. It's the living spirit that's in all of us. That's the moment of the outpouring of the sacraments in the Holy Spirit itself. And finally, in our letter to the Hebrews, quite a mysterious text, but it addresses why the covenant cannot be broken. Listen to the words from the letter to the Hebrews once again. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And when he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Now, there's some troubling things there. How could Jesus, who's the perfect son of the Father, who is God, how can he learn obedience? Well, first, the son is co-eternal. He's glorious with the Father. There is not an ordering of the glory. The Father and the Son are equal. So there's not an obedience of the Son to the Father in God. The obedience referred to here is the obedience of the human nature and the human will to that of God. That's something that can be learned. Jesus had the, the fullness of divine knowledge but he also had the capacity to grow in human knowledge. That's that learned obedience we're referring to here. But what about this phrase? When he was made perfect, what on earth does that mean? What is lacking in the perfection of Jesus Christ? We know he was sinless. We know he's perfect God. Why do we have this term, when he was made perfect? This word used here in the Greek, it's teleao. It's actually used in Exodus for the ordination of priests. When someone was ordained a priest, Aaron and his sons, the expression used is teleao. It means they were made perfect. They were brought to perfection or to fulfillment. The cross is the place where Jesus's priesthood is brought to perfection. That's the moment when we see him offer the perfect sacrifice. Before that time, he is a priest. He's the perfect union between God and man. But that priesthood's brought to perfection when he offers the perfect sacrifice. So where do we go from here? What does this revelation of the new covenant mean for us? Now that we know why we needed a new covenant, now that we know how Jesus accomplished this new covenant, what is there for us? What strikes me is I had a recent conversation with someone who was comparing mainline Protestantism, non-denominational Protestantism, Protestantism and Catholicism. And he asked a question, for me, personal striving for perfection is very important, and I have the idea that I can achieve that more in mainline Protestantism rather than Catholicism. What's your opinion of this? And I spoke to him and I said, well, actually, I had a professor in seminary who was a convert from Protestantism. He was a Protestant minister. He converted to Catholicism and he said, one of the key reasons was in dealing with people as a Protestant minister, the line was, Seek baptism. Be baptized and everything will go away. You'll be fine. That's the healing that Jesus gives us. 
that God can wipe away our sins and then you'll be a new creation. You'll live a new life. So people would seek baptism, but the problem was many of the things they struggled with would persist, whether it was alcoholism or drugs or unchastity or just not living a disciplined life. And so this Protestant minister, he was racking his brain, what do I do? I've given them baptism. That's the promise from the scriptures. Once you're baptized, you're a new creation. Where do we go from here? And the great mystery is the sacrament of confession. It's not a mystery to us. Not only does Catholic tradition has a robust knowledge and sense of human nature and the moral life, but we actually have a sacrament that allows us to continually begin again, to seek God's grace, and to truly live in unbroken covenant. It's not unbroken because we never sin. The covenant that Jesus made for us with God is unbroken because his mercy is infinite, because he forgives us no matter how often we sin. That's why it's not possible to break it. He will always bring us back because Jesus' blood is God's blood. It will never run out. Its power can never be exhausted. So in seeking this covenant, in, in being with Christ and in Christ, having recourse to the sacrament of confession is essential. And the other aspect, in addition to confession, seeking that forgiveness of sin so that we can constantly grow in our perfection, the other aspect is to see his priesthood as an example. All of us are baptized as priests. It's not just ordained ministers like myself. All of us have the priesthood of the baptized within us. And it was through obedience in the midst of suffering that Jesus' priesthood is brought to perfection. That's a model for us. So taking a moment and thinking about all the things that we are suffering right now, all of the sufferings and sacrifices that are asked of us at this very moment. Think about all of those and unite them with Christ on the cross. As priests, having been baptized, we are called to offer a sacrifice as priests. That sacrifice, all the sacrifices you have to make for the ones that you love, for the sufferings that you experience that are not inflicted because of anything you've done. They're just inflicted upon you. Those sufferings and sacrifices belong at this altar so that when the priest says the words of consecration, we have been united with Christ. So truly, our sufferings, our sacrifices, our entire selves are transformed into his body, blood, soul, and divinity.